presents Real American Heroes. Real American Heroes. Today we salute you, Mr. Pickle Pig Speed Eater. Mr. Pickle Pig Speed Eater. Ignoring all you know about pigs and where they live and what they step in, you look at their pickled paws and say, yummy. Look and Craving only the most daring meal, you pass up the cow tongue, skate by the head cheese, dismiss the Rocky Mountain oysters. Rocky Mountain oysters. But a pig's foot soaked in pickle juice, now that's good eating. So crack open a nice cold Bud Light, Mr. Pickle Pig's Feet Eater, because it takes guts to eat those feet. Thank you, Mr. Light beer, and I suppose St. Louis, Missouri. This clown better hurry up. Arms start nice over. Chill, Rocket. Who's Frava? Who's Frava? Yeah. Who's Frava? And the 3 2. Crowded through for a base hit. He's one away. 2,999 hits for Derek Jeter. Trying to become the first Yankee to ever get 3,000. That one's dropped deep to left field. Going back, Joyce. Looking up. See ya. 3,000. History with an exclamation point. Oh, what a way to join the 3,000 hit club. Derek Jeter has done it in grand style. And Derek becomes the 28th man to pick up 3,000 hits. The first Yankee ever. In the glorious history of the franchise, and he does it with a home run. And a 37-year-old captain of the Yankees, number two, Derek Jeter, does it on this beautiful July afternoon in New York City. Congratulations to Derek Jeter, hit number 3,000. That one is drilled to left field. 3,001. Jeter's going for two, and he will make it. Now he's a triple away from the cycle. Another base hit for Jeter. He's four for four. Hey, it's not a triple, but a pretty good day. Runners go. And he throws in a stolen base on this great day. A double steal, one for Gardner, one for Jeter. And the one-two. Grounded up the middle and through for a base hit. Jeter's five for five. And the fairy tale just keeps getting sweeter. Oh, and the Yankees lead 5 4. Oh, Would you like to share? No, I'd rather not. Officer Hoyts, you've been coming here for six months now, and you haven't said a word. It's a safe environment, no judgment here. Douchebag. That's judgment, Jimmy. Come on. I relive it every night. Bronx, October. Game 7 of the World Series. I called the marbles, high pressure on the crowd, and I pulled tunnel duty. And I saw a shadowy figure in the tunnel. I told him to stop. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I finally pulled my gun. Pulled the deadly weapon and started running. Don't make me shoot, I'll do it. Are you deaf? You hear me, you'll freeze? You dick. I'm Derek Jeter. You shot me. You cost me 20 grand on that game. Douchebag. Cost the city a championship. I was being groomed for a top position in homicide, and I'm stuck with a desk jockey partner. Everybody calls me the Yankee Clipper. Because you shot Derek Jeter! He's a biracial angel. You should have shot A-Rod. <laughs>
the next 2-2. Two -two. Davis to left and will hit! Oh my! It's gone! From high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex, and straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Half man, half podcast machine. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kagalaki. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Greetings and salutations, C-Meds. What's cracking, you freaks? Lend me your ears so I can splooge that goody-good all over them. Thank you for sliding into my house of seams this week for yet another chapter in our BKP memoirs. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, has this season flown by or what? We're going into July already, folks. And this 23 season has lived by the code of that's why we play the games. A baseball universe where down is up and what's up is down. Hello, everybody. I got your hook up. Holler if you hear me. Jake Robinson, the gatekeeper here to collect the stories of players, moments, milestones, pop culture, stadiums that have been sewn into the fabric of baseball history as my goal in life is to leave these stories behind for future generations of seamheads as well as preach the gospel of baseball around the globe. Like the Blues Brothers, I'm on a mission from God. I take this position in life serious. Baseball, well, it's been a constant in my life. Through the ups and downs, the game, the game has brought me up solace and joy. And this is the only way I know how to pay the game back. Now, we have a huge career of moments, achievements, and stats to come through today as we're going to be taking a look under the hood at the life and times of Derek Jeter. And I'm going to keep the pregame banter at a minimum this week. There's a lot to go through. But there is something that has been bothering me all week as I've done the research here. And I can tell you, it's the total disrespect I see thrown at Jeter on social media today. I just, I don't get it. I mean, real fucking talk. Besides Nolan Ryan, I've never seen an elite talent Hall of Famer that is bad-mouthed more. I always hear this term overrated when it comes to Jeter, which is just stupid troll talk. First of all, the OGs in here, you know how I feel about the term over or underrated. It's a stupid troll term that is thrown around on social media like it's a real life quantifiable entity. Instead of, you know, some made up construct of your finite brain. And when I hear someone use the term 
I kind of think less of you. Well, maybe not less of you, but you're using words like overrated and underrated. I mean, give me a fucking break. Overrated? Underrated? By whose standards are you saying this person fits that bill? In other words, whose list of players, one through a million, are you using to consider this person over or underrated? No one's ever answered that question for me. Ever. It must be the list inside your own brain you're referring to because everyone has a different list where guys are ranked. And how can anyone possibly know where everyone has everyone ranked? You feel me? In other words, let me clarify my point here. If you say that Derek Jeter is the greatest player, Yankee, or shortstop who's ever lived, then okay. Then yes, I will admit you have overrated him. But most Yankees fans and baseball fans in general who really know the history of this game would never say those things about his career. Not with dudes like Ruth, Ted Williams, Willie Mays, Barry Bonds, Hank Aarons, or whoever else is floating around in your historical perspective. But those guys and their greatness, that doesn't diminish Jeter's greatness. He is for sure a top 100 player of all time. He is for sure a top 10 shortstop ever. And he's a top 10 Yankee ever. Hands down, no doubt about it, without questions. And I think this is crazy talk. I think that 99.9% of the audience would agree with what I just said. Again, top 100 player ever, top, top 10 shortstop ever, and top 10 Yankee ever. So if we all agree, how the hell is he fucking overrated? It doesn't make sense. He's not overrated at all. He's he's fucking overhated is what he is. And I just don't get it. People rip his defense. And it's really all they have. He declined as all aging vets do who do not partake in the clear. You feel me? Age, shoulder injuries, a broken angle. It was just proof that we're all human and the game has told all of us who ever played on any level that it's over. As a fan of a rival team, he was an outstanding defender in his prime years. He was rangy, athletic. I mean, he went to his right as good as anybody in the game. His jump throw was amazing. I mean, it was just as awe-inspiring as watching Cal move to his left and do the 360 spin before he fired the first. That was Ripken-esque. You had Ripken-esque, you had Jeter-esque. Yes, the defensive metrics are not kind, but honestly, folks, I'm not a believer in really any defensive metrics, to be honest with you. It's ironic that all the clutch hits that Jeter delivered in his career, he also has some of the most spectacular defensive plays on his resume. Defensive plays that will live in baseball and Yankees lore and generations to come. He's not overrated. Like Nolan Ryan, he is overhated. And you're nitpicking with the worst defensive shortstop label based on metrics. They're just flawed, man. I mean, really. And I just had to get that out there because it's very confusing to me. As someone who played, you know, on a rival team of him, man, I don't feel that way about Derek Jeter at all. I, I have total respect for that dude. 
So with that being said, I see the catcher is throwing down, and now the infield is throwing around that rock around the infield. Let's clear this platform. Kiss your loved ones goodbye. Load up our time travel choo-choo. As I'm calling all aboard. As I said, our time and destination for Kalamazoo, Michigan, 1985. To bear witness to the rise of a future Yankees icon. And while we race through these anomalic wormholes, spending space and time to our will on our way to Kalamazoo, Michigan in the mid-70s and 80s, let's get real comfortable with one another. Open our kimonos and talk a little Derek Jeter along the way. While I was putting this one together, going through hours of highlights, interviews, research, it was Derek's father, Charles, and his personal insight into the makeup of who and what his son is that I found spot on as someone who watched his career as a fan. And he said, baseball is a lot about attitude, not getting too high or low. Enjoy each game for what it has to offer Then forget it and move on. Review the game. Learn from your mistakes. But don't let it burn you. Many things matter more than sheer talent. Work. Education. Never being satisfied. These are the intangibles that Derek had. And let's face it, folks. Take it from Pops to keep it real. Because if there was ever a player in my lifetime who not only had, you know, Top shelf liquor talent, as well as the unquantifiable intangibles to match. It was Derek Jeter. And if you're listening to this show right now on some level, I'm thinking you get it. Baseball, unlike any other team sport in America, is a sport of failure. The all-time greats make outs around 60% of the time. That's the best of the best. The average ball player gets out upwards of 70% of the time. It's a game where your success is predicated on a lot of failure along the way. I mean, imagine an NFL kicker who missed 7 out of 10 field goal attempts. Or a quarterback who completes on an average of 7 out of 10 passes. The basketball player who misses 70% of his shots he takes. I'm going to tell you, none of those guys are going to have a job for very long with those kind of production numbers. But in baseball, you're going to the hall with the immortals. And it's a different mindset than any other sport. You have to be able to compartmentalize the ups and downs of the game that you just played. Don't let your failures burn you. Become nothing. Uh, Because nothing good ever came from that mentality. You you wake up and focus on today's game and who are the pitchers. It sounds easy, but it's really not when you fail seven seven out of ten times. Kids find out early in life if it's for them or not. For many, it's not. The rest of us, well, we're just wired different. Another thing I want to highlight from Mr. Jeter's quote is he starts off saying the game is about attitude. Which, duh, right? We, 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 all, we all get it. We know that. But many people, i found, confuse attitude with the guys who like to pound their chests and flip their bats 
The dudes who like to scream to the heavens when they strike a batter out. That's not attitude. That's self-promotional swagger. That's a whole other thing. You don't need that to be great. You have a lot of league average guys or barely above average nowadays who exhibit this type of behavior. So you don't need that to be a good player. Majeter had swagger. He wasn't shy to throw a fist pump in a moment of excitement or run the bases with his arm raised after a clutch dong. But it was never meant to show the other team up. You would never see Jeter throw a bat at the ground a la Reese Hoskins or a Batista bat toss in the big moment. Because he had too many big moments to do such silliness. I highly doubt you would ever see Deuce rounding second base and flashing the I love you Longhorn fingers to the crowd in the bleachers. I have an even harder time imagining him standing on second base and doing, you know, the sprinkler, what the Orioles do right now. Or running the dugout after a home run and grab a pirate sword, a pirate sword or, you know, wear like a gaudy pinstripe jacket. I just don't see that. He is among the last era of superstars who led by his play on the field and by example with a level that Old school decorum, you rarely see anymore. He played in an era where the game was rampant in PDs, yet he is truly above reproach. In fact, there isn't a superstar player that played in his era where if you told me it came out that they were up to shenanigans, there's nobody in that era that I wouldn't be able to wrap my head around and believe the facts. Not a one in that generation. Well, except for Jeter. And maybe Pedro. Yeah, he weighed about 160 pounds soaking wet. Man, I mean that. But DJ didn't play a steroid-powered-based game, but, man, was it beautiful. Old-school shit. And it was elite. And the intangibles were off the chart. Probably the best I ever saw in my 45 years of watching this game. On June 4th, 1985, the young Jeter attends his first game at Tiger Stadium with his parents and sister. And even though he grew up in Michigan, he spent summers with his Yankee fans' uh, grandparents. And he was a fan himself of the Bombers back then. And his grandparents, they frequently took him to Yankee stadiums. Uh, his favorite player was Dave Winfield. And his favorite childhood possession was the New York lid he always wore and the baseball that was signed by his Yankees idol, Dave Winfield, after a game he attended at the house that Ruth built. After that Tigers game, his parents will never forget the boys saying to them, one day you're going to see me play in Tigers Stadium. When reminded of this two decades later, Jeter said, I went to sleep that night knowing exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And I'm not sure I've woken up since. On June 7th, 1996, while playing in a career game number 68, his first year, DJ made good on his promise with his first appearance at Tiger Stadium. Uh, Of course, his parents were there as the two would frequent many of his greatest milestone moments and games throughout his career. 
That 1996, uh, Derek was the unanimous AL Rookie of the Year, leading the Yankees to their first world title since 1978. In the series clinching Game 6, Jeter was the catalyst of a three-run third-inning rally that put the Bombers in front of Atlanta. His single to left scored Joe Girardi with the uh, second run of the rally. He then stole second and scored on a Bernie Williams single to put New York up 3-2, to two, which would be the final score. Derek Sanderson Jeter was born in Pequotic Township, New Jersey on June 26, 1974 which is the day before the release of this show. So, for me, yesterday was Derek Jeter's 49th birthday. He is the son of a mixed-race parents, his mother, Dorothy Connors Jeter, the accountant, and Sanderson Charles Jeter, a substance abuse counselor. The two met in Germany while serving in the U.S. Army. His father was uh, a shortstop at Fisk University in Tennessee. And if you ever wondered, where did DJ get the discipline? And I'm sure Yankee fans knew this, but I never knew this. How was he able to maintain focus and not get caught up in the trappings of being the king of New York? Well, it most certainly started as a child for Deuce. As long as Derek can remember, he and his parents would have a sit-down every year as they were to draw binding contracts for him and his sister to sign. The documents would lay out the goals they expected the siblings to accomplish for the upcoming year, and it contained provisions defining acceptable and unacceptable behavior. They expected the two to do well academically, as strict daily hour uh, study hours were established, and they demanded that their children be involved in outside-of-classroom activities. Both Derek and his sister, they gravitated and participated in sports. Derek in baseball, and his sister, Charlie, who was five years his junior, she herself uh, was a high school softball star. And here we are, folks, pulling up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, 1985. The... Cheater family, they moved here about 10 years ago. Charles leading by example. He wrapped up his graduate studies at Western Michigan University. During the school year, DJ and his sister, they lived there with their parents. And during the summer, they lived with Dorothy's parents in Jersey. And the grandparents were big on continuing to instill the siblings with the strong Jeter values. It was on these summer trips when DJ became a diehard Yankees fan. For life. Within time, Derek is the high school athlete star at Kalamazoo Central High School. In his junior year, he is destroying the competition, batting 557 with seven home runs, 34 ribs. When he wasn't writing the beginning chapters of his uh, legend on the diamond, he was also an outstanding cross country runner and he played basketball. Not only was he dominating in high school basketball that or baseball that junior year, he also earned all-conference honors in basketball as well. Going into his senior year, 
He accepts a full scholarship to play baseball at the University of Michigan. He's going to play for Coach Bill Freehand, who had a spectacular 15-year career with the Detroit Tigers. That song played 11 All-Star Games and win five Gold Glove Awards. And around this time, Jeter is named a Super 25 player by USA Today, and he was attracting scouts from teams throughout the majors all the time. By May, he is batting 643, and he is the top high school prospect in the nation. He suffered an ankle sprain that year, rounding a muddy first base, but he still bats 508 with four home runs in his team's 24 games. He was also uh, an instinctual fielder, and he threw lasers to first base at velocities of 91 to 94 miles per hour. By June of 1992, it is obvious that Jeter is going to go top 10 in baseball in the amateur draft. The only question is, where's he going to go? And in which slot? The first five teams, they all selected college players. The Astros had the first pick. They selected third baseman Phil Nevin out of Cal State Fullerton. Right-handed pitcher Paul Shuey out of UNC went to the Indians. Southpaw Billy Wallace out of Mississippi State. He goes third to the Expos. Stanford's Olympian outfielder Jeffrey Hammonds was selected fourth by the Orioles. And Chad Matola, outfielder from Central Florida, was targeted by the Reds with pick number five. And the Yankees were next with the sixth pick. And, you know, that's after going 71-91 in 1991 for their third consecutive losing season. And on the recommendation of scout Dick Groach, the Yankees gleefully tabbed Derek and gave the Yankees fan out of Kalamazoo an $800,000 signing bonus. And I feel like I should mention here that $800,000 in 1992 and has the purchasing power of $1.7 million in the 2023 economy. So, after signing the contract, the young legend of big, is shuttled out to the Gulf Coast Rookie League, and he struggles out the gate. His poor showing on both sides of the ball. And I had DJ wondering if he made the right choice for going a scholarship opportunity with Big Blue. His first game was July 2nd, and he was hitless his first 14 at-bats. But manager Gary Denbo, he put in the work with the youngin'. He never lost faith in DJ. And suddenly... Jeter's refining his stroke. After 47 games, he leads the team in doubles with 10, uh, with 10, home runs with 3, and 25 ribs. The Yankees, encouraged by his progress, they promote him to the uh, low-A Sally League in Greensboro, North Carolina, where he played in 11 games. And more importantly, he meets pieces of his championship future for the first time when he becomes quick friends and teammates with catcher Jorge Posada, and Southpaw Andy Pettit. In 1993, he plays a full season in Greensboro where he meets the soon-to-be greatest closer ever, Mariano Rivera, to round out the infamous Core 4 Quartet that will eventually restore the Yankees' empire. The Yankees themselves have a close eye on young Jeter and they are overjoyed by his progress as 
He hits a team leading 295 with 11 of his 30 uh, extra base hits being triples. It was also Jeter's first taste of pro ball postseason as his Hornets advanced to the best of five league championship series versus Savannah, where they would fall short of their team goals in five games. Jeter's regular season play earned him a spot on the all-league team at shortstop, but his defense was subpar as Derek committed 56 errors in his first full season of A-ball. And there were voices in the Yankees, think tank, think tank, that outwardly questioned DJ's ability to play shortstop at the major league level. The self-deprecating Jeter once remarked, I was the king of robbing players of a potential hit, only to see that guy standing on second after a god-awful throw past the unfortunate first baseman who bore the responsibility of catching my errant throws. And 56 errors is a whopping total for sure. But if I've learned anything from researching these icons for our show here, high school kids tend to have uh, fielding lapses more so than the polished college kid when they transition to the minors. They're skipping a whole level of baseball, a whole level of speed. And it appears to be much harder defensively for a lot of these high school blue chippers. You, you know, uh, don't forget Chipper Jones, whom we covered here at PKP. Surefire, a uh, high school phenom, just like Jeter. He had 71 errors his first year Pro Bowl. So, Pro Bowl. So it's not something that's beyond the pale. The 1994 season is a whirlwind tour as Deuce dances his way through three levels of the farm, high A Tampa, double A Albany, and triple A Columbus. Each team, he batted over 300. He finished with a 344 average combined, 43 extra base hits, and 50 stolen bases. And that was good enough to earn minor league player of the year honors. So, with his youthful exuberance, and brilliance on the field and full display that 1994 season. Jeter's roadmap to play shortstop for his childhood team is coming into focus and appears to be without impediment. However, the Yankees make a curious move before the 1995 season when they acquire Blue Jays shortstop Tony Fernandez in a trade. The Bombers hadn't made the playoffs since 1991. And their projections were finally trending in the right direction. During that 1995 season, it was the first year that the MLB had instituted a wild card spot in each league. And the young Jeter cannot help but wonder how all these changes will impact his uh, path to the majors here. However, as many of you know in the audience... Baseball has like this innate way of sorting through the minutia and making the timeline consistently run, correct? Injuries to middle infielders uh, Pat Kelly as well as Fernandez enforced the Yankees' hand and precipitated Derek's promotion to the show. On May 29, 1995, Derek Jeter makes his major league debut just shy of his 21st birthday versus the Mariners at the Kingdom. Batting in the ninth hole, he goes over five that first game. But the following day, Jeter shows his catalyst ways, going two for three and scoring two runs in a seven to three loss. And the top half of the fifth in his seventh major league at bat, with the pinstripes down, two to nothing, Jeter leads off the inning with a smash single 
past the diving Mike Blowers for his first Major League hit off of Mariners pitcher Tim Belcher. And Sterling Hitchcock. Here's the kid, Derek Jeter, hunting for his first Major League hit. And sends a uh, base hit into left. And now took that ball back in the Yankee dugout. Derek Jeter, after going 0 for 6, finally has his first Major League hit. Right by Mike Blowers. Throwing the ball over to the Yankee dugout. I'm sure that'll be the first of a lot of hits for that brilliant young infielder, Derek Jeter. And something added to the trophy case. That's a ball that you want to keep. And DJ would eventually score a double by Jimmy Lawrence. Leading off the seventh inning, again finds himself on first after a hit. And it would score for the second time on a single by Paul O'Neill. On June 2nd, 1995, Derek would play for the first time in the house that Ruth built. And he steps to the plate, and he receives that familiar PA introduction that in itself would become an integral part of the Derek Jeter mystique in the years to come. Now batting, the shortstop, number two, Derek Jeter, number two. Now, the sound of that, that's my Bob Shepard. That's the best I can do. Not the best, not the worst. The sound, you know, that was usually Bob Shepard. But on this particular day, DJ's very first game in the boogie down, it was stand-up comedian slash TV star Jerry Seinfeld doing an impression of the paradigmic, paradigmatic announcer. And after that day, Shepard would be the only voice to call out Jeter's name at Yankee Stadium. Once Kelly and Fernandez returned, Jeter and his 234 average, 11 for 47 with 11 strikeouts, was sent back down to AAA Columbus where he posted a 317 campaign with 38 extra base hits in 123 games. He would rejoin the big club for the stretch run, but he only played two more games and he was left off the postseason roster. During the, the offseason, uh, Gene Stick Michaels, one of George Steinbrenner's most trusted capos. He successfully pleads the case for Derek Jeter to be the starting shortstop for the club on opening day 1996. And Jeter would repeat that role as the opening day shortstop for the next 17 years. It seems the young man from Kalamazoo was still in his deep sleep living his dream. On April 2nd, 1996, the Yankees not only had a brand new shortstop, they had a brand new manager. As Joe Torrey was hired to replace Buck Showalter, of course we all know Yankee Stadium has uh, seen a lineage of many, many, many great players for over three quarters of a century uh, playing that crib. And, you know, it, it holds one of the largest pool of retired numbers. In 1996, there were only two single-digit numbers available for the Yankees. That's number two and number six. The number two is given to Derek Jeter. The number six to the manager, Joe Torrey. And it's, you know, it's like this foreboding sign of the Yankees' legacy 
that the two of them would establish together. And, you know, just like I said a, a few minutes ago, it's just another example how the game of baseball has the ability to sort through the minutiae and make sure the historical timelines run correctly. It's almost got a life of it, its own at times. Two decades later, both of those iconic Yankee digits would be affixed to the wall in Monument Park. That first opening day, Jacob Field in Cleveland cheats. He makes his presence known and his impact felt when he takes Dennis Martinez downtown with a solo shot. That would give the Yankees a 2-0 lead. In the bottom of the seventh inning with the Bombers holding a two-run shutout advantage, Indian shortstop Omar Vizquel hits a dying quail over the infield. And that's destined to find some green score of the runner on second. When Jeter, in a blur, comes out of nowhere to nab the blooper and keep the tribe off the scoreboard. The wheels of history are now set in motion as Jeter is on his way to becoming the Yankees' marquee player that he had dreamed of becoming all those years ago. And looking back from day one in Cleveland, you knew Jeter was going to be a great player. The confidence he had, it was contagious, and he had so many facets to his game that could help win games. And that is his former teammate, Paul O'Neill. The Yankees ran through the American League his rookie year. On April 28th, New York took sole possession of first place and never really looked back the rest of the year. Three months later, they owned the East by 12 games. Their lead would shrink to four games over Baltimore, but that's as close as the Orioles would get, and they would have to settle for the newfangled American League wildcard berth, and we'll have the more on that in a bit. Uh, coming after August, the rookie Jeter, he took a batting average of three oh six in September, and he is rolling with a 17-game hitting streak from September 7th through the 25th, during which he batted 412 with 22 runs and 13 rips. Before sweeping the Tigers in Detroit, with uh, DJ going 6-for-13 in the series with a triple, three RBIs, he sits down with his father Charles, his most trusted of all allies. They share pizza together, and the son tells his father, he would like to form a foundation that gives back to the community. So, after some thought and, ret- and uh, introspection, the two collaborate to form the Turn to Foundation, which is dedicated to at-risk teens fighting drug addiction. And it has flourished since its conception, raising millions of dollars. In the ALDS against Texas Rangers, DJ goes hitless in Game 1 before finishing the Best of Five series with a 425 average, in a 7-for-17 effort, supplying key production in each of the Bombers' three wins as they defeated Texas in four. It was then on the face of those second-place Orioles in the wild card. Uh, the wild card winning Orioles in the American League Championship Series where umpire Richie Garcia would make one of the worst postseason blunders of Don Deckinger-like proportions in the very first game of the series. Okay, so, with the Yankees trailing, 4-3, to three, the bottom of the eighth, Jeter hits a long fly ball to right field with that classic inside-out stroke of his. He hits that off Orioles flamethrowing right-hander Armando Benitez. The ball is hit hard, but Orioles right fielder Tony Tarasco is tracking the fly ball, and he's settling underneath the plummeting ball, 
He's using all 314 feet of Yankee Stadium in a soft-ass right field dimensions. He raises his gloves to record this high-leverage eighth inning out. As Tarasco awaits his back against the fence, an arm from the stands extends a foot and a half over the right field wall, over the playing field, and in a bizarre sleight of hand instant, the ball disappears into a glove. But it ain't Tarasco's, who is now pointing at that little shit stain who impeded the flight of the ball and the play of the game. Now, umpire Richie Garcia is running down the line about 40 feet from Tony. He's rolling his finger like a helicopter, signaling a home run, and pandemonium just breaks loose. Tarasco is in shock after the egregious call, and it was. It was fucking egregious. And as an Orioles fan, look, it's still a hard Viking in the swallow. He, he, Tarasco begins arguing in vain with Garcia. Brady Anderson comes over from center field trying to understand what the hell Garcia could have possibly been looking at. And soon they're joined by pitcher Benitez, who's a fucking hothead anyway. Uh, he's run out to right field to protest, even though, you know, he couldn't see nothing from the fucking mound. He just didn't stay where he was at. Eventually, Orioles manager Dave Johnson shows up in right field. And he's in Richie's ear. We fucking talked about this before the game, Richie. You promised you would keep an eye out for fan interference, especially in this goddamn right field area when we exchanged our lineup cards. And Richie counters, I didn't miss nothing. It wasn't a home run, Davey. It cleared the fence. And Davey points in the stands and says, yeah, that's why I have that fucking kid on people's shoulders out there and they're fucking laughing at you, Richie. Nevertheless... Richie Garcia stuck to his story and his horrible eyesight. After all, he was the closest ump. No one could overrule him. And the home run stood tying the game at three. And that huge crash of noise you may have never heard once the play was made official. It was the hundreds of TVs in the Baltimore area uh, that were thrown out of windows and smashed. And, you know, this like holy shit anger. Last time up, he's stranded two. The Yankees have left ten men on base, including the bases loaded in the seventh. And two runners in both the fifth and the sixth. In right field, Tarasco going back to the track, to the wall. And what happens here? He contends that a fan reaches up and touches it. But Richie Garcia says no. It's a home run. Here comes Davey Johnson to argue as Jeter comes across to tie the game. Well, in postseason, you have an umpire down each line. And he was there. And Garcia was right there. The pitcher, Benitez, comes all the way out from the mound to argue. But I don't know how he can tell from the mound. <laughs> I don't either. And I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell you one thing. That's great hustle. Great hustle by Richie Garcia. Right. The contention by Tarasco is that the ball is descending and the fan touches it. He's right. He's He's right. right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That ball was not in the seat. It's okay to catch it if it's over the wall, but if it's in the playing field, then it's not allowed. You're not allowed to touch it. And you can see that ball is touched right there. Nice catch by the kid. But you see right away. 
Tarasco is pointing. I had the ball. I had the ball. I thought he was capped under it. See, he's nonchalant right there like he's going to catch it. And the kid, nice. Man, they need to uh, he didn't sign him up. It. Oh, he didn't catch it. Just brought it in. Yeah. You're right, Joe. I mean, look at this. He just reaches out. I mean, he is at least oh, he's way out. a foot onto the field. Oh, he's way out. And he makes the catch. Oh, wow. The way Tarasco was playing the ball, I'm not 100% sure he would have caught it. It might have hit off the top of the wall before he caught it, but there's no way it was going out. Either he was going to catch it, or it was going to hit the top of the fence for an extra base hit. It was not going to be a home run. I believe he was going to catch it by because he didn't jump. He was stationary. If it was going to be over his glove, I think he would have been in a jump. See, watch. He's going to. He's not going to jump. See, that ball's coming down. It's coming down. Oh, it's not going out. It was coming down. I think he would have caught the ball. He catches that ball. Absolutely. And, folks, <laughs> I, I, I got to be honest. I, I knew this was going to come up in the story. As a diehard O's fan since 1976, I wasn't sure how I was going to broach this moment in baseball time. I even had no idea when the on-air signal came on at the top of the show. I, I still kind of have no idea what is going to come out of my lips about this moment. But I would be remiss if I didn't get my fucking thoughts. Okay, look. We're, let's be honest here. I'm going to keep it honest and transparent with you at all times. I keep a record of the game's history through my experiences with the game. How I interpret the historical. And this play will be remembered for a long time by the people that come from my hometown. For sure. 27 years later. And look, first of all, I can't even believe it's been that fucking long. I'm 25 years old in 1995. I'm sorry, I'm 24. Good grief. Where the fuck does time go? Okay, so that's first. Secondly, I've heard Derek say in interviews, he saw... I'm going to be nice. He saw that kid throw his glove over the field. He knew it was a fan interference. He knew it. But he didn't care. And you know what? I ain't even mad at DJ. Game recognized game player. If, you know, the umpire tells you it's a home run. It's a goddamn home run. I totally get it, bro. You did what you were supposed to do. But look, uh, Mr. Magoo over here, Garcia. It's my turn. You had your turn. You suck, dude. You had no business being a World Series umpire and missing that blatant of a call. You had one fucking job. The easiest umpire position of all of them. The goddamn foul lines, for Christ's sake. You see if the ball is fair foul, and you watch for pan interference, which was uh, specifically mentioned in the exchanging of lineups and ground rules at the beginning of the game. Third, it's ironic that Bartman is a villain, but this Jeffrey Mayer turd, he's hailed as a hero. It was pathetic. He and his no-home-training parents or relatives or whatever DNA-sharing piece of shit that was with him. He should have been thrown out of Yankee Stadium immediately. Instead, he's hailed as a hero. He's on the front page of all the New York newspapers. He makes an appearance on the David Letterman show. He's given a key to the city. He ain't no hero where I come from, and I suggest that dude never find himself in an empty room with a snake. And if you listen, Jeffrey, if you're listening right now, Jeffrey Mayer, somebody told you to listen, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Alright, so it wasn't really, it wasn't that bad. I, 
I can hear Jeter in my ear now. Goose Raba, Snake. Goose Raba. The Yankees have to tie the game with a home run. That never fucking happened. They won the game in the 11th with a walk-off single by Bernie Williams. The Orioles would come back game two but instead of, and win, but instead of going back to Charm City with a 2 nothing lead, they now go back 1-1. One and one. And the damaged Orioles were not the same after that Jeffrey Mayer incident. The swagger and mystique of that you know, very good season they had. It was gone as the Orioles to a man. They had like this thousand-yard stare of a military veteran who can't escape the horrors he's witnessed in battle. They would lose three in a row at Camden Yards, and the Yankees were back in the World Series for the first time in 15 years, and it was Derek Jeter, the rookie, leading the way. In closing, as a baseball or, you know, really any kind of sports fan, you, you should never blame a win or loss on one play or a single call by the umpire. I truly believe that. After all, you know, look, the Orioles had numerous chances to expand the lead at various times throughout that game. They could have done that, and that Jeter solo shot, it wouldn't have fucking mattered. But they completely collapsed when they returned home. But boy, oh boy, that's still, you know, tough to digest. Jeter and the Yankees moved on to play the defending world champion Atlanta Braves. And Derek would play in pain as he, as he was drilled in Game 2 by Greg Maddox as the Braves took the first two games in the Bronx. The Yankees would win Game 3. Even though Derek didn't hit the ball out of the infield that game, he was still very much a catalyst. A, a first inning sacrifice set up the Yankees' first run, and his seventh inning single, uh, infield single, and ignited a three-run rally that gave the New York a five-to-one lead. In Game Four, down two games to one, Atlanta takes a six-to-nothing lead. But the Bombers fight back. Jeter's lead-off single to seventh and sparks a three-run rally to cut the Braves' lead to six to three. And eventually, New York would tie the game and send it to extra innings. In the tenth, a Jeter single is sandwiched by two walks, and the bases are drunk on backwoods liquor. The Bombers would score twice, win the game, and even the series. The Yankees won Game Five in Atlanta. They would return home to their ravenous fan base to wrap it up in Game Six. DJ single in the three-run third plates catcher Joe Girardi, and the Yankees would clinch the chip with a three-to-two win. When the season was completed, Jeter would win AL Rookie of the Year award honors, and he said, "Baseball's a humbling sport. You're on top one day, and at the bottom the next." I'll enjoy this Rookie of the Year award for now, but you will never have to worry about me getting a big head. Neither truer nor more prophetic words have probably ever been uttered by a ball player. As Mr. Jeter had plenty left in his tank, and he always carried himself with confidence, humility, and he did it all on the world's biggest baseball stage. And folks, I think this is where we're going to break this week. But look, don't go anywhere. I'll be back in a hot minute, Seamheads. Please, support your grassroots products that support your grassroots baseball podcast show. Laparillas, fish, and hand, uh, hand cleaners. No most smelly hands. I'll have my man Pod Squatch tell you all about it. Let me get some fluids in me. Figure out my strategy for the rest of this tale. Pay some bills. BRB, you freaks. It's the snake. 
See you on the other side of the break. Executive producer of Backwards K Pop. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish board. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the Fish and Hand Cleaner is an all natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap, only to touch my eyes half hour later, and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun dull base spice. Well, we also have a hand cleaner, specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish for fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, effect. Hey, Mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summer time shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning. Crawfishhandcleaner.com Coming down the line, fielded with.
with his bare hand, a shovel to Posada, and Giambi is out. What an unbelievable play by Jeter. Tommy, this is unbelievable. Jeter comes out of nowhere, grabs the ball with a little shovel pass into Posada. Posada makes the play. This could have been tough for, on Spencer. Look at Jeter. What is he even doing? Okay, so, before I broke out, we were detailing the life of Derek Jeter. He was born in New Jersey, and at the age of four, the family unit moves to Kalamazoo, Michigan. At a very young age, Jeter and his little sister, Charlie, would be sat down by parents Charles and Dorothy every year, and a contract between children and the parents would be drawn up. It was full of educational goals, expectations of higher learning, and participation in outside-of-school activities. During the school year, he and Charlie lived in Michigan, and during the summer, they spent their days with Dorothy's parents in New Jersey. It was during those summer days that Derek's grandfather would uh, take his grandson to Yankees games in the Bronx, and Jeter would fall absolutely head over heels in love with the Yankees. During his high school career, the loving but rigid parents, they held DJ to his contract, and Derek excels in basketball, cross country, and of course, baseball, where he is a man among boys at Kalamazoo Central High. He accepts an offer to play baseball at the University of Michigan, for former Tigers legend, now manager for Big Blue, Bill Freehand. Unfortunately for the Wolverines, the Yankees would take Jeter as the first high school player, sixth overall in the 1992 draft. From there, Jeter begins his climb into the pro ranks, but he does have some stumbles along the way, namely the 51 errors he committed between rookie ball and A ball. And with the help of minor league manager Barry Gary Dembo, and with the work ethic you would expect from the disciplined Jeter, he begins to show flashes of what's to come, and he never looks back. He meets his core teammates who will help write the Yankee ship with him that has been listless since 1981. He called, he's called up to the big club in 1995 when Yankees middle infielders Pat Kelly and Tony Fernandez suffer injuries. He bats 234. He's returned to AAA Columbus when uh, those starters came off the IL. He does get called back up in September, but he was excluded from the postseason roster. In 1996, Stick Michael pleads with the boss, George Steinbrenner, to make sure that Jeter is the starting shortstop on opening day. And so it is. Jeter dazzles his rookie year to win the World Series versus the Braves. And Jeter's a catalyst all year and into the postseason as he wins AL Rookie of the Year honors. And he promises to stay humble. Like long ago, signing contracts with his parents. Yeah, Jeter just, you know, he re- remains strong to his word throughout his career. Right? So I think about that covers the first segment. So let's move on with the rest of the story. Over the next 18 seasons, 
Jeter became the king of New York, winning the World Series five times on the world's biggest stage. He would become the face of not only the Yankees, but baseball as an entity. He would be as recognizable as any Yankees icon before him. In 1997, the Yankees would make their third appearance in the post, this time as a wild card team, but they would fall to Cleveland in the ALDS. Jeter would see his average fall to 291, and that would be the lowest it would ever be from 1996 to 2009. Jeter, like the Bulls, was never satisfied with second place. So the Bombers go out, they pick up second base with Chuck Knobloch, Third base with Scott Brosius. Those two guys are going to flank Deuce in the infield. Uh, they would lose four of the first games in the 1997 campaign, but they would quickly gel, turn it all around, and surge to a 114-48 and record. The best record in their storied franchise's history. This is the best baseball team I have ever seen, by the way. And it ain't even close. Jeter finishes that season with a 324 average, 19 home runs, 84 RBI. He was named to his first All-Star team, and he finished third in MLP, uh, I'm sorry, AL MVP voting. At 24 years old, Jeter is now the acknowledged leader of the New York Yankees. After steamrolling everyone in their path, they smacked the Rangers in the lips, sweeping them in the ALCS. They repaid the Tribe back in six games uh, in the championship series uh, with their receipts from the year before. And they run through the San Diego Padres, sweeping them out of the picture to stake their claim as one of baseball's all-time great teams. And I covered that World Series in the Tony Gwynn pod. If you'd like to revisit that series more in depth. The Yankees, led by Jeter. They continued their winning ways in 1999 and 2000. In 99, they faced several challenges, including Joe Torre's uh, fighting cancer. But the Yankees machine had continued to roll on, chewing up everything in front of them with young Jeter leading the charge. Jeter ranks out 219 hits to lead the league, posting a 349 average. He also blasted uh, 24 home runs, 101 ribs, and both of those stats Uh, marking the most of his stellar career. Once again, New York schools the Rangers, sweeping them for the second straight year. Next, they would face their arch-rival Boston Red Sox in the LCS. Boston, looking for the first World Series appearance for the first time since 1986, were thwarted by Jeter and company in five games that saw Jeter hit a a robust 350 off of uh, Beantown Hurlers. They would face off against Atlanta once again. And for the second year in a row, they choked out their NL counterparts in a sweep. And again, these are World Series that I covered extensively in the history of the Braves pod. I also have it uh, on uh, the Chipper Jones and Greg Maddox bio. They're all available on any platform you use to listen to your shows, or you can swing over to diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to listen to those. Okay. In 2000, DJ is up to his usual high standards of play. 
He's elected to his first All-Star start at shortstop for the American League in the All-Star Game. And he wins All-Star Game MVP honors, going 3-for-3 in the Midsummer Classic with a double and two RBI. For the third straight year, he eclipses the 200-hit mark with 201. The Yanks win their third of nine straight AL East pennants. In the postseason, they beat Oakland in five games and the Mariners in six to advance to yet another World Series, this time against cross-city rivals, the New York Mets. And the Mets had no answer for containing Jeter as he bats 4-0-9 in that series. The Yankees won the first two games, marking 14 straight World Series games won by manager Torrey. The Mets would win game three before Jeter takes the reins to squash any dreams of a world title that the boys from Queens may have had. In Game 4, he hits a leadoff shot to give the Yankees a one nothing lead. He triples and scores in a second at bat to make the game 3 to nothing, and the Yankees would win 3-2. to In the fifth and final game, he ties the game with another blast, and the Bombers would go on to close it out versus the Mets 4-2. to Jeter was selected to series MVP, become the first player in baseball history to win the All-Star Game MVP and the World Series MVP in the same year. In 2001, Jeter is again named an All-Star. He comes in as a replacement, and in the sixth, he drops Dong to give the AL a 3-2 lead, and they would wind up, I'm sorry, a 3-1 lead, and they would wind up winning 4-1. The East was again won by the Yankees with, who else? Derek Jeter leading the way with his 3-11 average. He joined the 2020 club with 21 home runs, 27 stolen bases. The postseason iconic moments continue to pile up as Jeter hits 444 versus the Oakland A's and the LCS. But he would be remembered more for one of the most amazing defensive plays you've ever seen on a baseball diamond. The A's were not going down without a fight, as this may have been one of their toughest postseason wins, uh, series wins during Jeter's tenures. Oakland had won the first two games at the house that the, that Ruth built, and the game three was a nail-biter. New York takes a one nothing lead off of a Jorge Posada home run in the fifth. In the seventh inning, with the Yankees clinging to the one nothing lead, Jeremy Giambi on first and Terrence Long at the plate. Long melts a line drive into the right field corner for a hit off of Mike Messina. Yankees right fielder Shane Spencer, he hustles after the ball. That's dancing around that right field corner of the Alameda Mausoleum. He fields it cleanly enough off a carom and he fires it back towards home plate. And the slow-footed Giambi is running as hard as he can. He rounds third and he heads to the plate where Posada is anxiously awaiting a cutoff man throw to home. Unfortunately, Spencer's throw misses two cutoff men and appears to be harmlessly bouncing down the first line for the waiting Posada. And Giambi is surely going to score on this defensive lap. When, all of a sudden, in a blur, that still to this day makes zero fucking sense. Jeter is Johnny on the spot. Before the play ends, he's running from a shortstop position across the infield. He, instead of standing on second to keep Long from advancing any further, he catches the ball 
that is feebly bouncing down the line and looks to be on course of rolling the last couple of steps in the Jorge's glove. And in one swift motion, the alert cheater pushes what can only be described as like, you know, this quarterback option pass to Posada, who catches the ball and tags Giambi on the back of the leg, and the umpire calls him out. And I played this bike coming out of the commercial just now, and it's truly one of the greatest defensive plays I've ever saw. Now look, I'm still not convinced to this day Giambi was out, but look, that that's on G- Jeremy, who went in standing up instead of cleats first. Spikes high. It, it, it truly is like the 90s version of Jackie stealing home against the Yankees in 1955. And neither one of those plays would have had enough evidence to support turning over the calls after slow motion replay today. But it is one of the craziest plays you will ever witness as a seam head. And I personally will never forget it. That play fired up the New Yorkers and they would hang on and win it. The Yankees found their chi. And they would win the next two games, 9-2 and 5-3, as the A's, like the Orioles, back in 96, were done after that crazy Jeter moment in the clinching game. Jeter, again, astounds the baseball universe. Terrence Long, up again in the 8th, with a man on, hits a foul pop-up on the left side of the infield. Jeter grabs the fly ball for the out before falling over the short wall by the fans and into the stands. And four outs later, the Yankees are in the World Series again. And folks, I just want to sidebar here. Poor fucking Terrence Long, right? I mean, 2000 was a crazy year for him. First of all, rookie sensation that year, Ichiro. He makes his presence known in America that year on national TV, ESPN, when he throws out the speedy and athletic long at third with a seed from right field that looks like something out of Star Wars. And then these two plays in the ALCS against him at the hands of Jeter. Long was a solid player, but he will always be remembered for being the victim of those three great defensive plays in 2000. I digress. In 2001, the Yankees are vying for their fourth consecutive title in a surreal year that saw even the most ardent Yankee hater rallying around the team after the 9-11 attacks on the New York City skyline. They find themselves in the World Series versus the Snakes of Arizona, who have a two-headed pitching Hydra and Kurt Schilling and Randy Johnson heading up their pitching rotation. The Snakes win games one and two, and Jeter is silent over seven versus those two aces. The Bombers come back to win game three, two to one. Jeter contributes a single. Schilling is back on the bump in game four, and the Diamondbacks score two in the eighth to stretch the score to three to one in the you know in the bottom of the eighth. Right-handed pitcher Byung Young Kim he takes over for Kurt. And he strikes out the side. New York is down to their last out in the ninth. When first baseman Tito Martinez drops two-run dong to tie the game. Closer Mo Rivera comes on in in the ninth and retires the Snakes in order. And going to the tenth, Kim is still around on the mound for Zona. And quickly retires the first two Yankee batters he faces. Bringing on Jeter, who is overboard in the game. And only one for 15 in the series. The tension, 
The late night drama unfolds as the clock hits midnight. And with Halloween getting smaller and smaller in the rearview mirror by the second, as the calendar switches to the month of November, Derek is in a duel for the ages with the rubber armed BK. After falling behind 0 2, Jeter massages the full count. On TV, you see a fan in the stands holding a homemade Mr. November sign above his head. The next pitch, the ninth of this epic battle, and sees Derek Jeter, Mr. November, and his classic inside-out swing sends a missile into the right field stands for the walk-off blast of his career. Now, uh, it was the first walk-off blast of his career. The Yankees would fold in seven games to Arizona. Jeter batted a puny 148 that series, but he did deliver that iconic moment that will forever be notched in baseball lore and memory. In 2002, Jeter and the Bombers again win the division with a 103-58 and record. Jeter's batting average slips to 297. In the division series, they faced the eventual world champion Anaheim Angels. Derek went 8 for 16 with a pair of dongs, but New York would lose in four. On June 3rd, 2003, DJ is named captain of the Yankees. The first player to be named such since Thurman Munson, who I did three weeks ago, and it's in the archives. Check it out if you haven't. The season had its challenges from the jump on Jeter. Opening day, he dislocates his shoulder, sliding into third base, head first, and he would miss the next 36 games. On May 13th, the captain returns to the lineup, and he does what he does best. He's again batting over 300. He puts his 1,500 hit on the board, and of course, he leads his team to yet another AL East pennant. They dispatch the Twins and the Red Sox in the postseason and find themselves once again in the World Series, this time against the Florida Marlins. They will lose the series versus the Marlins, even though Jeter abused Florida pitching with a three forty six average. After the 2003 campaign, the offseason played out like a bad soap opera, with the course of the Yankees changing in the clubhouse and on the field. An off-season injury to third baseman Aaron Boone, who was the uh, ALCS uh, hero of the year before with his home run to uh, clinch the game against Boston in the the, uh, championship series. Well, he had an injury, and it created a void in the Yankees infield, and the Boston Red Sox were on the precipice of watching Nomar Garciaparra enter his free agent season. And Boston was eager to make a trade for Rangers shortstop Alex Rodriguez, who was practically begging to leave Dallas quicker than a JFK motorcade. The Red Sox appeared on the verge of trading for A-Rod, but the Yankees swooped in. And here's how it went down, real quick. The Red Sox seemed to have a deal in place that would would have said, listen to this, they would have said Manny Ramirez, no more Garcia Parra, and Southpaw pitching prospect John Lester to Arlington with A-Rod coming back from Texas, Manly Ordunez, and Brandon McCarthy from the Southside White Sox. Boy, oh boy. 
the Rangers would have made out on that deal. Lester, Noma, Manning. Wow. But the problem was the outstanding money involved, about $179 million, which gave Red Sox GM Theo Epstein pause. And look, to A-Rod's credit, he was open to restructuring his deal, taking less money to get out. And he even signed a deal that would have allowed the trade to be executed. However, the players' union stepped in, put the kibosh on the deal, uh, allowing the game's highest-paid player to give up guaranteed loot is a no-no for the greedy union. It sets a dangerous precedent, and it was seen as too great a risk, even if A-Rod was on board. And so, the Red Sox were out. By the time the dust had settled, the Yankees had swooped in. They'd sent Alfonso Soriano to the Rangers for Alex. And the Rangers selected Joaquin Arias as the player to be named later from a list that reportedly included second base prospect Robinson Cano. A-Rod, along with Jeter, were among the premier shortstops of the air, which was loaded with incredible talent at that position, especially in the American League. And they had been friendly rivals in the past with A-Rod putting up power stats that were putting him on a collision course with the all-time great shortstops and all-time great power hitters. Over the prior three years with the Rangers, Rodriguez had hit 156 homers. He won a gold glove in 2002 and 2003. And he had a 305 average. And even though A-Rod was the better defender, the captain would keep his position, which I thought was rightly so at that time. And Alex would transition to third. Now, I'm not going to dig into the dynamics of their relationship. And, I, and I'll tell you why. First of all, I don't care. I'm not into the whole days of our lives, minutia of pro athletes. I don't care who's banging who. You know, I just don't care. Secondly, I don't know either player intimately. And I truly do not know the nature of their intimate relationship. And as a historian, it's really not my place to comment or interject my thoughts on it. You know, if A-Rod Jeter want to tell you about it, they can tell you if they choose to do so. Also, I should really note that this moment in time is earmarked for numerous reasons as the be- the beginning of the decline of this era in Yankees history. In 2004, with A-Rod next to him, Jeter struggles out the gate. At one point from April 20th through the 28th, he went 0 for 32 before dropping Dong April 29th. By the end of April, his average stands at 168. But Jeter, being Jeter, he turned it all around. From July 30th to August 17th, he compiled a 17-game win streak, batting a toward 379 during that stretch. And by the end of the year, Jeter finishes the season with a 292 average. The Sox and Yankees, once again, are the Hatfields and McCoys of the ALEs, vying for supremacy. On July 1st, Jeter shows why he is the captain and all the other shortstops in the league should form the line behind him. With the Sox in town, the Yankees ride a, this time it's a four-game winning streak, and they're looking to extend their lead over second-place Boston. 
with the game deadlocked at three in the twelfth inning. Yeah, in the time before we had Ghost Runners, Red Sox pinch hitter Trot Nixon hit a Tanyan Sturts pitch down the left field line. Jeter takes off from a shortstop position. If this ball is in fairgrounds, the Sox will surely score two here. He grabs the ball, crosses the line into foul grounds, and plunges into the stands like Greg Leganis of the 1984 Olympics. When he reappears among the sea of Yankees humanity, his nose is busted up, but he still remarkably has the ball in his glove. And folks, no bullshit, real talk. This is my favorite defensive play I have ever seen in this sport. I've seen Jim Edmonds, Brooks Robinson, the catch by Willie Mays, Omar Vizquel, Ozzie Smith, Roberto Alomar. The best of the best defenders. Nothing for me compares to this play. And I'll tell you why. It's July. This guy plays every game like it's Game 7 of the World Series in July. The irony of the play is, earlier in that game, the Red Sox replaced Nomar at shortstop, and he spent the rest of the game sulking in front of the ESPN cameras in the dugout, while Deuce is literally putting his body on the line to make outs. In July. Also, it's, I like to note that A-Rod is following and tracking Jeter from a different angle of the play. And when Jeter disappears into the stands, A-Rod places both hands on his head in complete shock. And I can't help but think at that very moment, in the back of Alex's brain, he realizes Jeter truly is the greatest leader to ever play behind. Manny Ramirez would drop Dong the next inning, but the Yankees scored two runs in their half of their 13th to walk it off and extend their first place lead to eight and a half games. The Yankees would once again wear an AL East crown and for the ninth consecutive season find themselves in the post. His 316 ALCS average pushes New York past the Twins. The poor Twins. Lead him to face those damn Red Sox in the league championship series again. The Bombers win the first three games, but Jeter is scuffling with only two hits and a stolen base and 11 at-bats. Boston picks themselves up and has a comeback for the ages, winning four in a row. The last two games in their last at-bats, and Jeter can only muster one hit in those four games. For the series, he batted 200, 6 for 30. He did receive some consolation that year, winning his first of five gold gloves. And, you know, that World Series, he had to face Pedro and Schilling, you know, two of the, the greatest ever. The postseason frustrations, they continued from 2005 to 2007. Although New York made the playoffs in each of those years, they were unable to advance to the World Series. The only thing that Jeter and Steinbrenner ever fucking cared about. In 2008, for the first time in DJ's career, the Yankees failed to make the post. The media scrutiny in New York, which is always intense to say the least, began to ratchet it up, stirring the pot, focusing on the relationship between Jeter and A-Rod. Some media members were calling for the two to switch positions. Personally, Jeter had a productive year, but the failure to win a World Series since 2000, uh, it was a personal front to the captain. And like a heroin addict, he yearned for just you know one more ring. The taste of winning chips on the grandest stage, it motivated the captain 
in the offseason, and he put in the work. In 2009, he bats 334. He was selected as the starter in the Midsummer Classic, but more importantly, he leads the club one last time in the unfinished business of winning one more chip. This time, it was the Philadelphia Phillies standing in the way of Jeter's goals, and he made them pay for it. He hits 407 in the 2009 World Series, including a 3-for-5 effort with a double in the Game 6 clincher. And with that dispatching of Filthy in 6, the Yankees now had their 27th championship in club history with Derek Jeter, the catalyst captain, Mr. November, responsible for five of them. And now, A-Rod, who was never a great postseason bat, finally had his elusive ring off the back of the captain, even though he did have a fairly productive 250 average in that series. In 2010, he passes the first captain of the Yankees, Lou Gehrig, with hit number 2,722 for the most hits in the vaulting club's storied history. On July 9th, 2001, all eyes in the baseball world were on Derek Jeter, and much like 90% of his career, he rises above and beyond the stage for yet another incredible, unforgettable moment in his baseball career with the Yankees baseball gods. I mean, I can just imagine from Ruth all the way to Munson shedding a tear from above. He had been chasing the milestone 3,000 hit mark before suffering an injury in mid-June and missing 18 games while stuck on hit number 2,994. On the 4th of July, he returns off the IL at Cleveland where he collects four hits in the series versus the Tribe. And going into the game versus the Tampa Rays at Yankee Stadium, he needs just two more hits to become the first Yankees player ever to collect 3,000 hits, which still just blows me away with all the amazing Yankee stars to ever grace a diamond. He goes 5 for 5, and that was the clip played in the intro to this week's program. Number 3,000 was a hanging David Price slider that Jeter deposited into the left field stands. His 3,003rd hit was an RBI single that would give the Yankees the 5-4 to four win. There was one more great season left in Jeter's arsenal. In 2012, he batted a team-leading 316 and with a league-leading 216 hits as New York would qualify for the playoffs for the 17th time in Jeter's 18-year tenure. My God. But the run would not end in a string of Jeter's iconic postseason moments. Rather, it would end in eerie silence and a lot of questions about the future. After beating the Orioles in the LDS, where Jeter had a team-high eight hits and a three sixty-four batting average, the Yankees only had the Detroit Tigers standing in the way of another World Series appearance. Game one became a crossroads moment when the Tigers jumped out to an early 4 to nothing lead. The Yankees behind home runs by Ichiro Suzuki and Raul Abanez. They brought the team back to tie the exciting uh, opener to the series. And in the top of the 12th, the Tigers break the tie after an RBI double. Next batter, Johnny Peralta, hits a smash grounder to the left side of the infield. Jeter dives for the ball. He gloves it, but he couldn't do anything with it. He had saved a crucial extra run, but with the Tigers on the corner, all that was irrelevant as Derek lay motionless on the infield dirt. And with the stadium 
usually uh, unusually quiet for an October evening, Jeter had broken his ankle, which effectively ended his top-shelf liquor play. The Yankees failed to make the playoffs Jeter's last two years. He missed most of the 2013 season, playing in only 17 games, batting 214. Before the 2014 season popped off, he announced his intentions to retire at the end of the upcoming campaign. As he made his farewell tour, opponents and rivals alike, they paid homage to his incredible career in a show of competitive respect. He only had 256, but he saved his best for last. One more time on the grand stage with everyone watching. On September 25th, 2013, in the Boogie Down versus the Orioles, the game is knotted at 5 in the bottom of the ninth with a runner on second base. Back in 2010, before a Yankee Stadium public announce address, uh, address announcer Bob Shepard had passed, he recorded the introduction to Jeter's at-bats. And Jeter would use that recording at all home game at-bats. You know, so it was it was Bob Shepard, his iconic voice, posthumously calling Derek Jeter's name. So, for one last time, Mr. October, the captain, is introduced by the haunting, posthumous sounds of Shepard. Can this dude step up one more time and lead his team to victory? Almost all games being played at the moment broke away to see if this was, in fact, Jeter's last at-bat. And, of course he can. And, of course he did. He hit a single, driving in the winning run for one last time. The players come out and greet him at first bank. And, for one last time, Jeter leads the Yankees to yet another win. In 2017, he purchased the Miami Marlins, but he stepped down uh, just last year when he and the organization had differing visions for the team. Just last week, he made his TV analyst debut on Fox with David Ortiz and former teammate Alex Rodriguez. Poppy gave Jeter a welcoming gift, a Boston Red Sox jersey that said Jeter on it. And with everyone laughing behind the gag, Jeter, uh, he looked politely unimpressed, and he feigned throwing it away once he read the name on the shirt, and he joked he was going home and he was never coming back, as A-Rod and Poppy, you know, they continued to laugh. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seam heads of all ages, this is the story of Derek Jeter, Mr. November. I want to thank you guys for joining me in the dojo this week. I know it ran a little long. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed telling the Derek Jeter story. And I'll try to be better next week. So, before I head out like a newborn, let's take a look at those oh-so-lovely Derek Jeter stats. Derek Sanderson Jeter. Born June 26, 1974. So as I record this, it's Derek's 49th birthday. And it will be released the day after his birthday. So, happy birthday, Cap. When I think of team leaders in basketball, I think of Michael Jordan. In football, Ray Lewis. And in baseball, I think of you, man. Tremendous skill. Unquantifiable intangibles. And it was an absolute honor 
watching you play. I mean, you should destroy my team, man. You know, that, that ain't too cool, but, bro, it was an honor to watch you, man. 20-year career, all with the New York Yankees. 71.3 war, the eighth highest wins above replacement rating for all short stops in the history of the game. And the 95th best of all players who ever played. 2,747 regular season games. 12,602 plate appearances. 1,923 runs. The 10th most in baseball history. 3,465 hits. The 6th most in baseball. Behind only Pete Rose, Tyrus Raymond Cobb, Hank Aaron, Stan Musel, and Trish Speaker. And look, that's not overrated company to keep right there. 544 doubles, 66 triples, 260 dogs, 1,311 ribs, 358 stolen bases, 97 times caught, 1,840 strikeouts, 1,082 walks. His 4,921 total bases is the 24th most in the game's illustrious history. And let me give you perspective of my favorite baseball stat in relation to Jeter. He is sandwiched between sluggers Jimmy Fox at 23 and Teddy Ballgame at 25. He finished with a most impressive slash line of 310, 377, 440 with an 817 OPS and a 115 OPS plus. Jeter's most proudest achievement Five World Series championships, of course. 1996 Rookie of the Year, 14-time All-Star. And 2000, Jeter becomes the only player in baseball to win the All-Star MVP and the World Series MVP the same year. 2006 and 2009, AL Hank Aaron winner in recognition of being the best hitter in your respective league. 2009, Roberto Clemente Award for his work with at-risk teens and drug abuse. Five Silver Slugger Awards for being the best hitting shortstop, 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, and 2012. He has the fifth most singles in the history of the game, behind only Rose, Cobb, Eddie Count, Collins, and Cap Anson. And only one of those players, Rose, didn't play in the dead ball era. So, he literally has... The second most singles in the modern game. On January 22nd, 2020, the Yankees fan from Kalamazoo, who has been living his dream since the end of his high school career, was elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, to be housed with the Immortals. His name was checked on all but one ballot, and his 99.7% of the vote is second to only teammate Mariana Rivera. And is 100%. So, like I said, the only way Derek Jeter is overrated is if someone says he is the greatest player ever, the greatest shortstop ever, or the greatest Yankee ever, then I might call horseshit. But he has the chips, he has the numbers, he has the records, he has the moments. He's among the all-time greats for sure. He's not overrated. He's overhated. But that happens when you're a winner. People get salty. They, you know, jealous. Especially at this ridiculously hard sport. I mean, you know, he made winning chips look easy. 
So look, if you want to reach out to me and tell me I'm wrong or how much you love the show, I ain't hard to find. You can email the show backwardskpod at gmail.com. The show's Twitter handle is at back underscore K underscore podcast. My personal Twitter page is at jrobbie one That's J-R-O-B-B-I-E and the number one. Our YouTube, ch- YouTube channel is Backwards K-Pod. But I'm usually chilling with the boys and girls on the Facebook private group page, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Some of the greatest baseball minds on the planet there. And we talk all things seem. So answer the questions and come on in and join the fray. I will never, ever, ever charge you for the baseball content here at PKP. No Patreon, no Twitch, no pay-to-play crowdsourcing. This is an iron-clad promise from the snake to you. I'm just going to keep coming through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Paul Molitor, baby. So, with the Jeter show getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror, I now turn my steely-eyes gaze to our baseball hydra, and I chop the head of the beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. Next week. Oh, man, this is going to be fun. I cannot wait. Next week, we're going to break down the one and only Satchel Page. Man, oh, man, oh, man. I cannot wait to go there. Add him to our collection. Look, folks, I have the greatest job in the world. I have the best audience a fella could ever ask for. I get to talk Satchel Page next week. But look, you know the deal. That's another story for another pod here at Backwards K Pod. Where we collect ball players and their stories. If you're on a platform that allows you to rate and review me, please do so as you see fit. I ain't stirred. Nothing I enjoy more in life than the work and the payoff when it comes to this show and this audience. So yeah, hook a good brother up. I got 99 problems, but this pod ain't one, baby. I'll see you next week with Satchel. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch like a board AF, they got their noses in the phone like a totally unproductive. It's June, baby. Take those little rug rats outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy, Shay Hillenbrand told me in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo last year. You go to hell, Lady Paddock. See you next week, you cement freaks. Peace.